Are you guys doing okay? You guys doing all right? I was gone last week. Did you guys notice? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you didn't, then you were probably gone too. But yeah, I was out last week. Christina and I took the took the weekend to to be with the kids. So for the first time in 20 years of ministry, I was part of. It's always the church church attendance across America goes down on Father's Day, and and I partook in that last week. <laughs> But uh, it, was, it was nice to just kind of spend some time together, get, get away a little bit, but so good to be back. Uh, in the life of Jesus, <clears throat> on the Tuesday before he went to the cross, he went to the house of a man named Simon, and they were having this meal together. You know, not everybody knew that Jesus was going to die that week. They knew some things were different. The triumphal entry had taken place, all of that, but in Simon's house, they had this meal. It seems that Jesus was the guest of honor, uh, but there was also another figure there that was very important. It was Lazarus. Jesus had already raised Lazarus back to life. So it's kind of a, like a celebration, a party. There they are together, Lazarus, Jesus, all these people. And one of Lazarus's sisters, a woman named Mary, <clears throat> she apparently was really tuned into Jesus. She knew that something was going to happen, that he was going to die. So she took an alabaster flask of, of very costly oil, and during the meal, she broke it, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. And it was just this beautiful, tender moment of worship. Uh, a, a sentiment began to spread throughout the room that the alabaster flask of ointment should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. But the person that started that attitude was Judas, who the Bible says didn't really want to give the money to the poor. He wanted to take the money for himself because he was in charge of the money box and he would often steal from it. So anyways, Jesus redeemed the moment by correcting that sentiment as it began to spread. And he said, what this woman has done will be told of her wherever the gospel is preached. She's anointed my body for burial. Just imagine being Mary in that moment. There must have just been something there about Jesus and his teaching and the way he treated her and the way that he administered to her over those years that made her want to do that for him. And maybe you've found yourself in that kind of moment in your life before. Have you, have you ever been in that place where you just feel like, Lord, what can I do for you? You know, what, what can I do to say thank you for all that you've done for me? You know, what, what can I do to say thank you for your teaching in my life? What can I do to say thank you for your salvation in my life? What can I do to appreciate you? And maybe you've even felt that during a time of musical worship before God where you're singing out loud and you're like, Lord, I want you to receive my praise. I'm so thankful for who you are, but I want to do more than this. Is there anything more that I could do? Is there, is there some ministry you could give me to do? Is there some kind of open door you could put in my life? I want to give my life to you. I, I want to do something for you. Not to make a name for myself, Lord, but because I love you. Have you ever felt that way? Well, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, began to really feel that way before God. At this point in his life, he's past 40 years of age, uh, or around 40 years of age, he's the king of all of Israel. He's established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He's moved the ark to Jerusalem, and God has given him favor over their persistent enemy, the Philistines. And so they're in a time of relative peace, and he, he wants to build God a permanent structure, a permanent house. So that's what we're going to see today. But if you know the story, you know that God is going to tell David no. Going to say no to David. He's going to actually tell David that David's son will build the temple, but that David will not be able to build the temple. So he's going to refuse David's beautiful desire within his heart. Maybe you have, have experience with that. Have you ever experienced the Lord saying no to you for something in life? Have you ever experienced the Lord saying no to you for something that is actually a beautiful, biblical, good desire? But he says, no, that's not what I have for you. 
That's not the desire that I have for you. If so, if you've ever gone through that, if the door has ever closed, a, a door, the Lord has ever closed a door in your life that was even a good thing, then you might uh, find yourself a little bit here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's start out just reading the story and uh, watching what happened in David's life. So it says in verse 1, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, <clears throat> and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, all right, so this is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I'm named after this guy. This is, my, everybody calls me Nate, and if I'd have known when I was in elementary school that I had a future as a pastor, I would have, when they started calling me Nate, said, that's not my name, it's Nathan, because Nathan is a Bible name. But I let everybody call me Nate, and so now you guys all call me Nate too, so that's fine. So my wife, my mom, and my sister, they call me Nathan. Everybody else calls me Nate. But anyways, side trail, rabbit trail. <laughs> the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So a few things to notice there in those three verses that kind of set up what's going to happen. First of all, David is in a time in Israel of peace. They have verse 1, the word is the word rest. Isn't that a beautiful word? They have rest. And David looks out and he notices that God's ark, God's house, God's ark is inside a tent, a tabernacle. He looks at his house and he sees that it's made of cedar, that you know, he's blessed. And so he goes to his prophet, Nathan, who's part of kind of like his cabinet. That'd be a way to think of Nathan the prophet for David. And he says, look, this is what's going on. God's, God lives in a tent and I live in a house of cedar. So Nathan tells David, go and do everything that's in your heart. I mean, Nathan at this point, as he's watched David's life, he's seen a few decades now where he says, you know, God is clearly on David's side. He's a God-hearted man. God is blessing David's life. And now he wants to build God a permanent house. It seems like a good desire. We're finally here in Jerusalem. We have a capital city. We're not moving around anymore. So this seems like it would be a good time for the tabernacle to transition to a temple. So he says, go, do everything that's in your heart. You're a good man. You're a godly man. Do everything that is in uh, your heart. Now this is actually, I mean, wouldn't we confess a beautiful desire that David has? Now there's another king in the Bible named Nebuchadnezzar who responded to a similar season of prosperity in his life in a completely different way. He was not the king of Israel. He was the king of Babylon. They were the nation that God used to discipline the people of Israel or specifically the tribe of Judah in southern Israel after a long period of rebellion against the Lord. And King Nebuchadnezzar came to a point in his life where he looked down and he saw a similar kind of peace and prosperity. But listen to what he said at that point in his life. He walked about on the roof of his palace and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty, mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You see... People are going to respond in one of two ways to success. <laughs> David looked out and he just is like, this isn't right. This, this, God has blessed me. God has blessed my life. God has blessed Israel. And this is not right that God is in a tent and I'm in this house of cedar. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he looked out and he says, look at what I built. Look at the success that I have worked. Look at the things that I have done. And you might know the story in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God struck him with seven years of insanity to humble the man so that he could become usable again. You see, God has to discipline the pride out of us so that we can be usable in his hand, amen? And so David here, this is a beautiful response to things going well in his life. He's not crediting himself, he's crediting God. And so Nathan, you know, he perceives this is a beautiful desire, so he affirms it. He says, do everything that's in your heart. But, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan 
and said, go and tell my servant David. Now, before we read what God tells Nathan to do, this was actually a beautiful time of preparation in Nathan's life because he's going to have to tell David no here. He's going to say, David, you're not allowed to build the temple. But, but spoiler alert, it's like the easiest no that anyone in, in all of humanity has ever had to deliver to another person. Because instead of just saying, hey, you know, sorry, I told you yes, but God got a hold of me last night and he told me no, so now I got to tell you that you're not allowed to build that temple for him. What Nathan's going to do is he's going to say, God said you can't build a temple, but he also said he's going to build you a house and he's going to give you a descendant that sits on your throne forever. He's going to make your name great and of the of your throne and kingdom, there will be no end. It's going to be a forever kingdom. So no, but here's all this really good stuff. So, you know, it's like the easiest no to ever deliver to somebody. Like I have some, you know, you've used the phrase before, good news, bad news. Which one do you want first? It's massive good news. Just a minor little setback here for David. But this was preparatory for Nathan because a time would come in a few years where David would find himself guilty of adultery and murder, and God would tell Nathan the prophet about it. He would reveal it to Nathan. And Nathan had to get comfortable with correcting the king. So this is kind of like the training wheels for Nathan. And he's going to put on his big boy pants later in David's life and really you know, have to deliver a serious no into David's life. So let's read, first of all, the first thing that God told Nathan to say to David. There in verse 5, he said, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what God is doing here is he's pointing out their history. He says, look, historically, you know, when I, when I bought the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, you know, four centuries plus of slavery in Egypt, I brought all the plagues and then the Passover and I brought them out and they took them through the Red Sea. One of my first moves was to bring their leader up to the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, Moses, and he met with me for 40 days. And during that meeting, I gave him the 10 commandments by which to govern the people. And then I gave him also the ceremonial law of God, rules that the nation of Israel should follow during that era. And in that ceremonial law, I gave him the directions about the tabernacle. And so they built the tabernacle, and they built the ark, and they put the ark of the covenant inside the holy of holies. And that's, you know, I was right there in the center of the nation as they wandered around in the wilderness. And then when Joshua brought them into the promised land, uh, there was still an ark. And you know, wherever they determined that it would go, they'd set up the tabernacle, the ark would be. And then after Joshua was gone, there was the period of the judges. And what God is saying is, I, I, I was always fine with it. I never said, hey, you know, all I have is this tent. No, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He holds the universe in the span of his hand. He's not, he's say, what he's saying to David is, I've never complained that I've been camping well, you guys are building permanent houses. That's what God is saying. And he's like, is this a complaint of mine? No, it's not a complaint of mine. It's no big deal. I own everything. I possess everything. Did I ever give this commandment? But the thing that I want to just think about for a second is what David is going through in this moment. I already alluded to it. That pull within David's heart to do something for God. That pull is biblical. That pull is good. You know, when you give your life to Christ, he becomes your king. He becomes your leader. And it is a good desire from David to want to do something for the Lord. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, Paul teaches 
through his writing to Titus, the church, that there are four distinct things that happen when we begin to embrace the gospel of grace. One thing that happens is that we get saved. The grace of God has appeared, he says, bringing salvation. You know, when you, when you hear of your own sin and you agree that, yes, I'm a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, when you begin to realize that God made provision for your falling short of his glory by sending his own son, and when you begin to realize that God has dispensed his grace upon us in the form of that cross, then grace brings salvation in your life. But, but not only that. It goes on to say, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, that it trains us, the grace of God does, to live holy lives. You know, to set aside uncleanness and ungodliness and to live holy lives. Because if what Jesus was dealing with on the cross was our sin, then it makes no sense that we would run back into sin when he has declared us to be righteous. So if we're positionally righteous, and if he paid for our sin there upon the cross, and it was so abhorrent that it put him upon the cross, and it would train us, that grace, to say, I don't want to live an ungodly life any longer. I want to live a holy life, being thankful for the grace that has been given to me. But Paul goes on to say that a third thing happens. It causes us, the grace of God does, to wait in anticipation for the return of Jesus. Now the key word there in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 seems to be the word wait. Waiting. You see so often what sin is is an unwillingness to wait. You see the Lord has declared all these beautiful promises that so often will be in the future in our lives, but a lack of patience, a lack of waiting causes us to try to take for ourselves today rather than wait for the glory that will come. And then the last thing that Paul said, the fourth thing that comes with the grace of God is that it makes a people who are zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. You know, in other words, when the grace of God comes crushing into your heart and into your life, you begin to kind of just look around like, God, what can I do? What can I do? I, I want to serve you. I want to be obedient to you. I want to do a good work. I want to spend my life doing good works for you. In other words, a life of good works is part of our call as Christians, part of our response to the gospel of grace. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. When we believe in him, he becomes our king. And so we want to look around and say, King Jesus, how would you have me to live? But... Sometimes in our pursuit of looking around saying, King Jesus, what do you want me to do? There are times in our lives where we will want to do something that is a good work for the Lord that he says, no, that's not for you. That's not what I want you to do. Sometimes a specific good work is not from the Lord. Though we want to live purposeful, meaningful, impactful lives, we as individuals aren't called to do everything. Amen? I mean, the reality is we can't do every good work that there is to do. So I make this point with a little bit of fear and trepidation because it seems that in general, in the universal church throughout the world these days, the temptation has less to do with doing the wrong good work and the temptation is a little bit more about doing no good works at all. You know, so, so I, I, I make this point with a little bit of caution, because if you're that kind of person who's just like, well, whatever, I'm just going to kind of live my life, and I don't think that I need to or want to do anything in obedience to the Lord, you're in error. You're wrong. You, you want to be obedient to the Lord. He's your king. However, you can't do everything. And, and even here in David's life, there was something that was a good desire that was yet not of the Lord, not of God. Perhaps you can even relate to this in your own life. Maybe there was a ministry you wanted to do or some way that you hoped that God would use your life. And maybe it was a good desire, a godly desire, 
But the Lord said no to that thing. I know myself. I've experienced that so many times in ministry and in life. A good desire, something I thought, oh, Lord, I'd love it if you would. And he says no. Well, what are you going to do about that? You have to be content with who God has made you to be. Now, let's move on in the story. It says in verse 8, continuing to think about what God told Nathan to say, he says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint, verse 10, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you, verse 11, rest from your enemies. Now let's, let's pause it right there. You know, David just talks, or excuse me, God is talking here to David through Nathan, and he announces three beautiful things that he says he's going to do for David. First of all, he tells him, I made you, here's my plan, I'm going to make you, I've made you, and I'll continue to make you the prince of Israel. But did you notice how God said it to David? He said, I took you from being a shepherd of the sheep. Now, when was David a shepherd of the sheep? It was like 25 years before this moment in his life, right? You know, when he was a teenager, uh, you might remember the story there in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel the prophet came to his house, to his father Jesse, and said, look, let's have a feast together, a festival together, something big's going to happen today. Invite all your sons, remember, all your sons, invite all your family, bring them all here. And then they had this feast, and Eliab, the firstborn, comes up before Samuel, and Samuel says, surely, this is the Lord's anointed is before him. This guy's going to be the future king. And God whispers in his ear, no, I've rejected him. Because the Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And so Samuel says, no. And then to son number two, three, four, five, six, seven, all of them, he says, no, this is not the one. And then he looks at Jesse and he's like, do you have any more sons? Hey, I told you to bring all. Are there any more? Are you holding out on me? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one. I was too cheap to hire a, sh a shepherd, a, a substitute shepherd for him. He's out watching my sheep. And Nathan, uh, Samuel says, well, we're not going to sit down until he comes. And so David comes in, little teenager, anoints him with oil. The rabbis say that he whispered into David's ear, you're the future king of Israel. But this, this was, at this point in David's life, this was a distant memory is what I'm trying to say. God's trying to remind this guy, look, I called you when you were just a shepherd. Don't you remember you had, you had nothing to give me? You had, you had nothing to give me. You were just this teenager, and I, and I called you. I set my plan upon your life. I, I, I told you that I was going to place you upon this throne. And, and I think that this reminder from the Lord is one of those things that God so often has to do in your life and in my life as we're walking with him. Because there's something that can happen. You know, in those early days when you first start walking with the Lord, you first give your life to Christ, you first get saved, you know, you're just so thankful. It seems really natural to just kind of realize, like, I, I have nothing to give to the Lord. I don't know any Bible verses. My spiritual gifts are all raw and unrefined. I have no good skills to offer him yet. You know, I'm just kind of a mess, yet he loved me. And he chose me and he took me. But then, as the Spirit continues to parent you and work in your life, you begin to grow. And God begins to give you gifts and you begin to get refined in those gifts. You begin to use those gifts and God begins to use your life. And it's possible to get a couple decades down the road, three, four decades down the road, and to begin to think, hey, it's not so much like, like it's a little more even now. And God, I have something to give to you. I have something that I'm going to do for you. And God here reminds this guy, he's like, yeah, it's really sweet that you want to do something for me, but I just want to remind you, I pulled you out of the sheepfold. You were, I took you when you were just a nothing. 
So remember that. So he tells him that, number one, I'm going to make you prince over Israel. He tells David also, I'm going to give you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. That's in verse, uh, verse 9. A name, the great ones of the earth. And that's true, right? We're, here we are, you know, over a thousand years, a couple thousand, few thousand years later, we're studying the life of David. And, uh, you know, he's become one of the great ones that people know and that people remember. And, you know, for probably every person in this room, unless there's just something crazy that's going to happen in one of your lives, for most of us, within a few generations, no one's going to know our name, right? I mean, I think about it in my own family. I know my I know my grandfathers. I know a little bit about what they did. I know if, if you ask me today the names of my great-grandfathers, I couldn't tell you. I'd have to go look it up. But my great-great-grandfathers, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea who they were. I have no idea what they did. I have no idea where they lived. I have no idea. I mean, I have like a guess, like I think these continents, you know. <laughs> but I have no idea. And they're forgotten, by me. And I'm in, their, I'm in their line. I'm in their family. You know, the reality is probably within a few generations, nobody's going to know your name. I'm trying to encourage you today. <laughs> this is encouraging. <laughs> David would be one of the rare individuals in human history. It's a very small group who would be known for thousands of years, and his name will be known eternally as well because of who he's related to. And then he tells him, you know, I'm going to give Israel a place of rest in verse 11. Look, the plan of God is always to outgive his people. He's outgiving David here. David's like, I want to build you a temple. And God just begins. He hasn't even gotten to the big promises yet. We haven't even read those yet. And he says, well, that's neat that you want to do that for me, but I'm going to make you a prince. I'm going to give you a great name, and I'm going to bring peace to your people. They will be disturbed no more. This is what God does. God is an outgiving God. You will never be able to outgive God. In the entirety of your life, you'll never be able to outgive God. God outgives us in a few different ways. He outgives us by, number one, giving first to us. John said it this way in 1 John 4, verse 19. He said, we love him because he first loved us. God is always the initiator. You know, before you even were, before you even existed, God knew you. He knew your name. From the foundations of the world, Christ was slain for you. His love is always first. And even in our time-space continuum, as we look at the unfolding of human history, we're, of course, looking back on the cross of Christ. His love is always first. God said through uh, to Job, in Job 41, verse 11, he said, who has first given to me? Who gave to me first that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. God gives first, and we are responding to what he gives. God also outgives us by giving in response to our giving more than we gave. Did that sentence even make any sense at all? Okay. God gives in response to our giving. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he said, give and it will be given to you. But then this is how. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I've read a lot of different scholars trying to figure out what good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap technically actually means, and I've seen a lot of different opinions. I don't think anybody totally knows, but what everybody recognizes is it was a way for Jesus to say, there's no way you can outgive me. You, you'll give, but I will give to you in a, with good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. It's just going to be overflowing. There's no way that you can outgive me. Jesus, or the Lord, outgives us by giving more than we could ever give. Uh, this is found mostly in the cross of Christ. I mean, will you ever give anything to the Lord that is equal to what he's done for you on the cross? The answer is no. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul talked to the Corinthian church about financial matters. There was this a church, the church in Jerusalem, Paul was collecting a financial gift from various European churches for the church in Jerusalem because they were suffering distress. And the Corinthian church had said, we'll give, but then they were kind of, you ever made like a financial commitment to someone and then you're like, oh, maybe not. They were going through that. And so Paul wrote to them, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, about generosity, and he encouraged them to continue their predetermined gift to this church in Jerusalem. And he wrote to them two chapters, which are very applicable to us. And some of the same principles I've talked to you about already are in there. You know, that when you give, you can't be out giving. God will give in return, you know, things like that. But in conclusion, when Paul ended that teaching, this is how he ended it. He said, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. He summed up all his financial teaching about the, to the Corinthian church. And then he said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That was kind of his way of wrapping it up. He's like, you guys should give, you know, all these different reasons. But then he ends it with, and thanks be to God for his gift that cannot even be expressed. Just how amazing it is, how incredible it is what the Lord has done for us. And then finally, I told you that the Lord outgives us by giving to us first, but he also outgives us by giving to us last. You see, for all of eternity, we're going to be experiencing God giving to us as we enjoy the glorification that is ours if we are in Christ Jesus. And Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have, we've received from the Lord. And so God cannot be outgiven. David is learning that at this point in his life. And it seems that at various junctions in the Christian life, we must remember or relearn or recall the outgiving nature of God. Remember when Jesus wanted to talk to the disciples about what real faith looks like? What did he do? I mean, he, he got a lot of lessons on faith. You know, mustard seed, that's one thing that he did. You know, a lot of different times he talked about faith. But one huge teaching on faith was when Jesus took a little child and set that little child, I want to meet this kid, you know, in heaven, took this little child and set them in front of the disciples and said, this, this child, their humility, their faith, that's the example that I want you to follow. You see, sometimes when we walk with the Lord for a while, we start getting all professional about it. We start thinking we're, you know, we're, we're, we're really mature, we're really grown up, and, it, and like, you know, at the beginning, God was solid, but we weren't, but now we're like pretty solid, like God. <laughs> but we have so far to go, and he's looking for us to be like children, like children who receive, like children who trust. And the, the Lord here, he cannot be outgiven. He, wants, he always wants to be in that parental role with you. All right, so those are just some of the blessings that Nathan told, tells David that he's going to get, but there's one really massive one that's still coming. So let's read that together in verse 11 and following. The middle of verse 11, God goes on to say, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him, verse 14, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Remember the king before David. And, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, verse 17, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, now this is the big promise that God made to David. This is what we call the Davidic covenant. 
Uh, and when we say that, what we mean by it is that God made other promises to other patriarchs before David. So there's the Abrahamic covenant or the Noahic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant dictated that uh, the Messiah was going to come from Abraham. And then later God confirmed that that promise was also given to his son Isaac rather than Ishmael. And then uh, to Isaac's son Jacob rather than Esau. And then at the end of Genesis, it seems like in Genesis 48 and 49, there's an indication that the promise will also flow through Judah. So at this point, they're now years from those original promises. You got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and they're waiting. David's in the tribe of Judah. They're waiting. Who's the Messiah going to come from? Who's the Savior going to come from? And here, God announces it's going to come through David. The Messiah is going to come from David's line. And the beautiful thing is that when you get to the life of Jesus, centuries after this moment, uh, both Mary, Jesus' biological parent, and Joseph, his adoptive parent, are in, through different streams, the, the ancestry, the line of David. So Jesus is very much the son of David, and he'll, he would adopt that title uh, throughout his ministry. Now that little paragraph we just read, as you go through it, it's an example of an Old Testament scripture where there are parallel fulfillments. Some of it reads like Solomon, like it's about Solomon, who will build the temple for after David dies. And then some of it reads as a promise concerning the Christ, concerning the Messiah. You can see Jesus in there in a few different ways. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Now that sounds more like Solomon than like Jesus until you consider that when Jesus came, he began to build a spiritual house, a spiritual temple of which we are part today. In verse 12 and in 13, God says, I'll establish his kingdom. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this speaks to us of Jesus's forever reign or forever kingdom. You know that phrase or that verse that we like to read and sing about and celebrate in Isaiah chapter 9 at Christmas time? In Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Remember that? Well, here's how it continues. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And Jesus is sitting on David's throne. Notice also verse 14. This is also very much like Jesus. I will be to him, God says, a father, and he will be to me a son. So this figure who would sit on David's throne forever would be God would be his father, and he would be God's son. You might remember that God actually spoke three times during Jesus' earthly ministry, out loud, from heaven, kind of speaking. Uh, there was a time where Jesus was baptized. Remember, he came out of the water, and God spoke and said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then the second time that God spoke from heaven was when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountaintop. We call it the mountain of transfiguration, but they didn't, they didn't call it that yet. They didn't know that's what was going to happen there. And Jesus, they, they had a prayer meeting. It wasn't really a them prayer meeting. It was Jesus praying and them sleeping. But that's how their prayer meetings went. And when they woke up, Jesus was in a glorified state. They saw his glory. And he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. Who, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that might just sound like, oh, okay, cool. He was talking with Moses and Elijah. But they'd been dead for a long time. They'd been off the scene. Not, he, Elijah hadn't died. Moses had. But they were both in heaven. And they were speaking with Jesus. And Peter's like, this is amazing. Let's build tents and stay here on this mountaintop. And God spoke again and said, this is my son, hear him, you know, which is a very cool moment. Moses, great, the law, Elijah, the prophets, but hear Jesus. 
You know, you got to read Moses and you got to read the prophets through the lens of Christ. That's, that's where the ultimate fulfillment is found. And then, right before Jesus died on the cross, he prayed, Father, this is in the Gospel of John chapter 12, he said, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. So the Father didn't in that time say, you're my son, but Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And God speaks, you're my son, you know, is the implication. So that's the idea of verse 14. I will be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. Now the other thing that we see there about Jesus, verse 14, what it says is, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men, sons of men. Now, obviously, we understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus did not ever sin, that he was sinless. It says in Hebrews that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. When they tried to find something to accuse him of, uh, they could find no crime to, to make stick upon him. He was the sinless spotless son of God, fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, fulfilling the law of God that we could not fulfill and all of that. Some of your translations might actually put verse 14 as a statement that makes it sound more like the iniquity was put upon him. The iniquity of mankind was put upon him. So the reality of verse 14 is that Jesus did not sin, but he took the punishment and the wrath that belonged to every sinner. So it came upon him. He was disciplined by the Father with the rod of men and with the stripes of the Son of Men. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 16 tells us, Your house, your kingdom, your throne, it will be established forever. And so when Jesus came along, People started hoping that he was the Davidic promise, the Davidic fulfillment, the Messiah. And most people during the time of Christ, they were hoping that that meant that he would kick out the Romans and get a new thing going and Israel would be prominent again. That's what most people were hoping. But then Jesus died. And it was kind of a shock to the disciples and those fringe followers of Jesus. A lot of people bounced at that time. But he rose from the dead. And then told his disciples after he, before he ascended, he said, wait in Jerusalem. And then he ascended, and for 10 days they waited. Then the Spirit came down, fell upon them, and everybody gathered together, and Peter started preaching. And one of the things he did when he was preaching is he quoted David from Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16, David had said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You'll not leave him in Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter went on to make the point, but David saw corruption. Because David died, his tomb's still here. That was Peter's big point. You know, like David saying, like, you're not going to let my body stay in Hades forever. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he's like, but he did see corruption. And then Peter goes on to say that's because he was not talking about himself or his own body. He was talking about the one who would come from his body, the Messiah. And he rose from the dead, and he would not see corruption. This is what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. It says, he knew that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So I'm making a big deal about it today uh, because this is a big biblical moment. That's why I'm making a big deal out of it. I try to make a big deal out of stuff that the Bible makes a big deal out of. It makes me feel safe. So there it is, the Davidic covenant, the plan of God. All right, so David is... is is in God's plan. And, you know, by the way, you and I, we're in God's plan, but on the other side of things. We're not the ancestors of Christ, we're, but as believers, the descendants of Christ. We get to come into his family, adopted uh, and born again. All right, now, uh, 
the rest of the chapter is David praying a prayer of thanksgiving. I'm going to read it to you. I have hardly anything to say about this, and you can hold me to it. So verse 18 says, Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Notice the humility that David's praying with. He's just very humble. He's just thankful to God. Lord, you've done this for me. He's just floored by this. Then, in verse 22, he begins to worship God. He says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no one besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David is just worshiping the Lord for the uniqueness of his plan, especially as found amongst the people of Israel. I personally believe that in general revelation, the cosmos, one of the, which is, which is filled with clues about who God is and his provision for humanity and his design of humanity, his love for humanity. One of the things that we should be able to see in the cosmos that is a clue about God is the nation of Israel. It's, it's, one, it's, it's a nation that, because it still exists, and, and because it's always at the center of worldwide attention, it seems that there should be a question that people ask of, why? Why? And, you know, it, that doesn't tell you everything, but it should be a clue that drives you to the Lord. And then I also believe from places like Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God has a future and robust, uh, beautiful plan for the nation of Israel once again, that we've been grafted into God's plan for them, but that they will be brought back into flourishing at some point when Christ returns. And then he says in verse 25, look at this. He says, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless this house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I want you to notice this last paragraph of David's prayer. He just basically, there. you know how sometimes you'll hear some people talk about the Lord, and it, it, it sounds like humility, but it sounds like false humility. Like, a, oh, I'm so, I'm just a, such a wretch, and I'm just terrible, and the, I just, uh, that God would bless my life, you know, I, it's just amazing, you know, kind of thing. David hears all these promises from God, and he doesn't say, oh, God, you shouldn't do any of that for me. That's just a little over the top. He just, he hears it from God and then he starts praying for it to happen. He's like, okay, I receive that. And I pray that you would do it. And he, and he, he kind of the attitude that he has, there's even a line in there like, the only reason I have courage to pray like this is because you told me about it. So because you've said this, I pray that you would do this in my life. If you actually really think about it, if you've studied the epistles at all in the New Testament, what you'll understand is that that is basically what the experience of the Christian life is. The experience of the Christian life is learning what God has promised his people who are covered by the blood and learning how to hear it, receive it, and then appropriate it into your everyday practice in life. Like for example, Romans 6, you know what God promises there? Newness of life newness of life. 
Newness is beautiful, right? Uh, a life that is always new. We, have, we own nothing that's like this. You buy a new car, it's new, and then you drive it off the lot, and it's, it's not new anymore, you know? And it's only going to have more miles, not less miles, and so it's, it's only going to lose that new car smell and feeling rather than get more of it. It's never new, it's only older. But in, there's, in Christianity, the possibility of newness of life because Jesus rose from the dead. We died with him, we were buried with him, we rose from the dead with him, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, so we can live right now in newness of life like he has. But that's not a lot of times our experience, but that's what we can have. So, Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, we must consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is dead to sin, has no, I mean, he was, he was alive to it in the sense that he was tempted by it. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. But now, in his exalted state, he doesn't even have that relationship with it. He's that dead to it. And he's very alive to God. There's no like waking up in Jesus' life like, where's God? You know, they're just together, the, tr- the triunity of God. He's, he's dead to sin, alive to God, so we must consider ourselves to be in the same position. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God also, even if that's not how I feel, that's who I am. And then Paul goes on to say, you've got to make sure that you present your members, not as servants to unrighteousness, but to righteousness. And as you do, you're going to experience more and more the newness of life that is already yours. That's all Paul, that's all, uh, excuse me, David is doing at this point. He's heard God's promise. He's praying it in. He's appropriating it, bringing it into his life. That's what the Christian life is all about. So the promise of God to David. Uh, Later in his life, apparently God would tell him why he said no. When David died, he told his son Solomon, God told me it's because I had blood on my hands. I was a man of war. But right here, God didn't tell him that. So there will be times in your life where God says no to you, but he doesn't tell you why. And maybe he'll tell you later why. But in the moment, he didn't tell David why. But he found out later, oh, it's because I have blood on my hands. Now, this whole thing didn't stop David at all because he collected all the materials for the temple and had the architectural designs done for the temple, and got it all ready so that on his deathbed he could look Solomon in the eye and say, when I die, build the temple. It's all right there. You just have to construct it like an Ikea bookshelf. (laughs) Put it together. It's all there. It's probably easier than that for Solomon. He made the directions very plain. So, powerful promise. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.